Hello, hello. We are live. Good evening, good day, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Ask Abhijit. I am excited to be back amongst you all. It's good to see your smiling faces wherever you are. Um, okay, let me take a look at who all is there. Let me quickly greet some of you as if I can. Rishabh, Abhishek, Aditya, Tejas, Kripa, Everyday Pursuits, Komal, Guru, Abbasis, Santosht, Argya, Vicky Chahal, Kabir, Ash, Ash Ketchum, Anusha, Gaurav, Vihan, Only Gems, Drawing AJ, Aman, Arora, Balaji, Dodda, Ashish, Yuvraj, Gruki, Tejas, Himalayan Meditation, Atharva, Avijit, Animish, Human, Bingo, Chiching, Somya, Majumdar, Kripa, Shenai, Bimla says, Bonsoir from Pondicherry. Bonsoir, madame. J'espère tout va bien. Aman, Arora, Madan Singh, Unmarked Indians, Kostub, Jaiswal, SK, Mohit, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day, everybody. It is great to be back with you all. So, as I I'm sure you know. Today, I'm going to take questions that you have asked in the comments in the previous week or so. And at the end of that, hopefully, if I have some time, I will take some live questions if that is possible. So let's begin with question number one. Okay, Ishwar Roshan says, India's total COVID cases per 1 million population is 30K. While the US and Europe have more than 200k COVID cases per 1 million population, same goes for deaths, 360 per million in India, while 2000 plus per million in the US, Europe. India, while having a much larger population than these individual countries, has recorded much less COVID cases and deaths. Should we see this as an accomplishment or is it like we are conducting less tests and deaths are going unregistered as claimed by the so-called experts by seeing such a large population of India? Okay, I'm not sure about the figures, but I get the gist of what you're saying. Uh, the overall caseload in India is much, much lower than in the West, in Europe and the US. And overall deaths per million also, whatever the figures are, are much lower in India than in these countries. So the question is, is this just under-reporting? Is India under-reporting the cases and the deaths? That's what the Western journalists, New York Times, Washington Post, have been saying for the past two years. India is under-reporting, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know what? If India was under-reporting the cases and there were many more, then the hospitals would be overflowing. There would be a crisis everywhere and you would see it. And it's not happening. It's not happening. So it tells you that India has managed this pandemic way better than the West. In the West, they have these triple vaccinations and booster doses and four times vaccinations. Israel is the most vaccinated country in the world. It's it's technically part of the West. And you can see the caseload there. You can see the number of cases per million, the number of deaths per million. It is incredible. So there's clearly something that India is doing better than the West. What would that be? Well, first of all, we have a different vaccine. We have an Indian vaccine that, that we are using. We are not using the RNA-based vaccine and the Western vaccines. The Indian pharma pharmaceutical industry is not... Uh, well, the entire uh, business model is different from that of the West. So in the West, it's all about making money out of people, out of the pandemic. That's the that's just the way it is. In India, it's not that. So the Indian vaccine is the best vaccine in the world. It has the fewest side effects, the fewest number of vaccine injuries or whatever you call it. 
and it is the most effective. Two doses, you are done. Whether it's Omicron, whether it is Sigma or Delta or Gamma or Psi or whatever it is, it works. And secondly, um, the way the vaccine, uh, the, the <laughs> pandemic has been managed in states like UP, etc., there is this entire kit they give to every person who is infected and it really works really well and so on. So India has done an excellent and exceptionally good job at managing the pandemic. India is not trying to monetize the pandemic the way it is the West is doing, especially the United States where everything is monetized. Even a tragedy is monetized. Every person has a certain monetary value for the vaccine companies and so on. So that's not the case in India. So India, so what the, the impression that certain uh, Western publications have been trying to create and certain motivated journalists on Twitter, etc. They keep on going about it, that India is under-reporting cases. That's BS. That's complete nonsense. By now, they have been thoroughly exposed. They will still keep on doing it, but no one's listening to them anymore. Nobody is listening to them anymore. These uh, uh, big journalists and big publications have lost their credibility over the past two years. Completely lost their credibility. Initially, they were trying to push a certain narrative that, you know, they were saying this is a natural pandemic, there is no lab leak, and that has been totally discredited now. So don't believe what these people are saying. India has done extraordinarily well in managing the pandemic. Next question. Please pick my question. The, why are there no revolutionary movements against China in Tibet or illegally occupied parts of Mongolia and Turkmenistan? Well, let's let's talk about Tibet. So in Tibet, there have been these insurrections. There have been, uh, from time to time, these uh, uprisings against Chinese occupation. And they have always been crushed brutally. So I think there was one in the, 2000, in the early 2000s or, or the, in, in the first decade of the first millennium, second millennium. Third millennium, <laughs> in the first decade of the 2000s, I think there was one large uprising. And in the 20th century, after the occupation of, of Tibet, there were several uprisings. They have all been crushed brutally by the Chinese occupying army. So these have been brutal, brutal put-downs of these insurrections. And there have been many of these. The thing is that we don't have all the reporters and journalists and TV cameras and all that in, in Chinese-occupied Tibet or any part of China. So we don't know what's happening in there. And they try their best to suppress all the information. They try their best from preventing news from leaking out of China. So we don't know what's happening. There, are, there, there is a lot of resistance against Chinese rule, but it is all crushed very brutally. What's happening is that Tibet is, is essentially a garrison province. It's full of Chinese soldiers. And the Communist Party has pushed in lots of Han settlers, Chinese settlers. So what's happened is that the entire demography of Tibet has been restructured, re-engineered. The native Tibetans, the indigenous people are now a minority in their own country. And there are more Chinese than Tibetans in Tibet. So that's what's happening. So they, are, they have tried all kinds of means to suppress the Tibetans and prevent any kind of uprising. Uprisings still happen. And there are all kinds of protests. There are lots of self-immolations and all kinds of terrible things happening there. But the news never comes out. And the Western media is not interested in Tibet. The West has essentially given up Tibet to, to China. They are only interested in the fate of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, etc., because of various other reasons. 
they don't care about tibet so lots of things are happening in tibet lots of things have been happening but slowly slowly the movement is being crushed and stifled uh, when it comes to other other uh, territories that have been occupied by by the by the chinese like xinjiang you, there are all kinds of uh, there's all kinds of resistance happening but the news doesn't come out so there is violent resistance it's not like uh, satyagraha they're doing they're not doing any satyagraha and non violent protest they are they are um opposing the chinese occupation through violent means but uh, and the chinese call it terrorism and so on so sometimes the news does leak out filter out but mostly the chinese try to keep a very tight lid on all the uh, on whatever's happening in there so we don't get to know about it the west is interested in xinjiang the west they don't care about the people of the of, of tibet so it's double standards it's 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 that's just the way the west is hypocrisy uh monarch says can you please explain the petroglyphs of ratnagiri how old are they let's take a look let's take a look right so let me share my screen let me share my screen okay let's take a look at the petroglyphs of ratnagiri here we are ratnagiri the petroglyphs of ratnagiri so if you look at the images the petroglyphs of ratnagiri are these uh, images these carvings that have been uh etched into stone in the ratnagiri region of uh, the uh, of southern india which is part of maharashtra so as you can see there are these ancient carvings this is the car- a large carving of an elephant uh this this is a human figure this is a wild it's a boar this seems to be a bovine animal this i'm not quite sure maybe an insect or something not quite sure and you can see there are quite complex figures here this is a spiral or a labyrinth of some kind this could be a rabbit perhaps and there are other such things as well you can see there are multiple animals human beings etc that are represented and this is most likely a deer not a kangaroo we don't have kangaroos in india and the human figure and so on and so forth so this is what the petroglyphs of ratnagiri is these are very ancient carvings in rock in the ratnagiri region of uh, southern india maharashtra essentially how old are they i believe that these carvings are believed to be about 12000 years old or so now the thing is that it is very difficult to accurately estimate the date of a rock carving see when it comes to when it comes to uh, organic material let's say you have a skeleton of an ancient human being you have uh, bits of bone you have teeth you have hair or you have something that's made out of wood etc then you can easily date that organic material uh, via carbon dating carbon 14 14 dating and there are other ways also of dating that organic material but when it comes to rock rock is typically millions of years old and uh, and a carving doesn't have any doesn't typically have any organic material in it Un- unless they have put some kind of they 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 have inserted some kind of paint or something which may have some organic components in that case it's easier to date it but typically rock carvings are almost impossible to date uh, you can only estimate a rough estimate or guesstimate roughly what the age could be like so i believe they have used a variety of uh, 
ways of reasoning and uh, the archaeologists have estimated this uh, these these rock carvings these petroglyphs to be around 12000 years old so they represent an ancient more ancient phase of indian civilization and culture and that's what it is so uh, these have been discovered i believe reasonably recently so a lot of research can be done into it and uh, and see what is the connection with later day um, cultures with i mean is there a cultural continuity what exactly does it represent does it represent worship of animals or just uh, i mean nobody takes the time and the trouble to do all kinds of detailed rock carvings it takes it's a, it's a lot of effort right so you would not do it unless it had a, sig- a certain special significance so what is the significance what does it represent in the uh, religious and cultural context and what is the relevance of that when it comes to cultural continuity Th- these things need to be looked into so i hope the asi or whoever else is looking into it will do this research and we one hopes to see some findings coming up in the coming days months years so that's what i can say in brief about the ratnagiri rock carvings Okay Chiching says are the britishers of then and today's generation proud of themselves that they could capture and rule so many countries in the past you know that um, that sort of attitude that sort of pride is always going to be there even if you look at the people of greece they are still proud of their guy alexander the warlord right they are very proud of him and the the, the things they did and they they try to bask in the reflected glory of that now there is this uh, belief among people that you know we are a great people or whatever the thing is this if you look at any any ethnicity any culture there's only a few people at any given time who are truly great maybe 1% or maybe less than 1% maybe 1% of 1% that sort of uh, uh, percentage of the population exhibits true greatness but when that happens everybody tries to claim that greatness on themselves and they try to democratize that greatness that's not really how it works of course some people like indians they have produced more intelligent and great people than others percentage wise and so on so that's how it is so the british they have claimed this greatness on themselves what they have done is conquered the world brutalized the world pillaged the world destroyed the world destroyed the ecology of the world destroyed, destroyed ecosystems destroyed cultures it is nothing to be proud of yeah sure you were able to to weaponize science and technology and destroy cultures that were more peaceful than you and you were tried, you were able to superimpose your culture your language your religion on various conquered peoples do you think is it it is greatness that's the thing right i mean look at what they've done done in africa if you look at the length and the breadth of africa the parts that were occupied and destroyed by the british you will see that they have eradicated the beautiful african culture from all these places you will see most of these people africans trying to speak broken english and they are all they have all lost their traditional culture and religion today it's all been wiped out and replaced by whatever came from europe and you will see that happening in other parts of the world also where the british have had their influence including parts of india i don't see this as a sign of greatness i think i see this as a sign of barbarity and depravity but yes there is a certain amount of pride that the british still have they may not exhibit all the uh, exhibit that all the time because nowadays you know you have to be politically correct and all that 
and so on. But yes, it is there, and you will see that, especially among the older folks, that we ruled the world, we civilized the world, we created the commonwealth, and we gave you culture, and we gave you laws, and we gave you buildings, and all that nonsense. Uh, so yes, the British still have at least an undercurrent of that pride. They may not exhibit it uh, openly, but it's there. But you know what's happening now? All that the pride will remain as long as they are reasonably prosperous. The UK is very prosperous. The per capita GDP is very high. Standards of living are really, really excellent compared to other parts of the world because of all the loot and plunder which they did over a, a few centuries. So all of the wealth was was relocated to England, and that's why they are they are enjoying the fruits of that plunder even today, whether they realize it or not. But now what's happening is that the, the countries they destroyed, especially India and to some extent China as well, which they tried to destroy. So these countries are rising again. Now in the next 50 years, the per capita GDP of India is going to rise most likely above that of the UK. China is already rising very fast. So in the next 50 to 100 years, they're going to be from a GDP uh, perspective, from a living standards perspective, most likely going to be inferior to the East. And it is at that point that all that pride will have disappeared. Because your pride typically depends on your level of prosperity. If you have destroyed other countries and you're, you're more prosperous, then you feel that you are superior. But if you did destroy them in the past, and now you have gone down compared to them, then all that pride will not exist anymore. So that's just how it is. Typically, a person's level of uh, pride and arrogance depends on how much money they have. That you will see in nations and you will see in individuals also. That's just the way the world works. So that's that's what you have. So yes, the, yes, what teaching asks is very uh, relevant. They still have a, a great deal of pride in what they have done in destroying the world. It won't last long. Okay, Pushpendra Singh says, what led to the decline of the Sikh kingdom after the demise of Maharaja Ranjit Singh? And can you please explain the significance and achievements of Maharaja Ranjit Singh? So let's begin with the second half, the significance and achievements of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So we have to understand what sort of world Maharaja Ranjit Singh came into. Uh, it was before the advent of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, the northern part of India and most of India by that time was kind of... Uh, occupied and was in the process of being destroyed by the Turks, right? And in northern India, in Punjab, Kashmir, etc., you had the Abdali uh, destruction, the uh, Sikandar, Bochikan thing and all that. So uh, this region was also brutalized. It had been brutalized by the Afghans, by the Persians and by the Turks. Afghans, uh, the Pashtuns mainly, and the Turks, of course. So that's the kind of uh, world that uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh was born into. Right, and India was not. There was no political unity in India. There was there was a lack of sufficient resistance to the foreign occupation. So that's the world he came into. He created this kingdom. They call it the Sikh Empire. I call it the Sikh Kingdom because it was not that large. But what he did was he kicked out the Pashtuns from Kashmir. He freed Kashmir and uh, and Punjab, of course. He unified. Uh, politically everything under his domain and he he launched these punitive expeditions against the Pashtuns, against the Afghans. He kicked them out of Kashmir. He he freed Kashmir. He also conquered parts of Pashtun territory and uh, he put that under his rule and he 
undid all of the brutality that the uh, foreigners had perpetrated. He banned cow slaughter and, and things like that. You know, so it was a very good period, very uh, a period in which there was justice and peace, and Indian culture was was again honored. So that's what he achieved: military accomplishments and uh, peaceful rule and a sort of uh, revival of culture for some time and that that's what he achieved marajarandit singh now if i am not mistaken he passed away in uh, 1839 listen when i give a date it's it could be wrong okay i am not very don't take my dates literally just look it up if you want the details i will give you a rough uh, um approximation of when things happened so i think he i he most probably died in 1839 and what happened after that is that within 10 years the sikh kingdom sikh empire disintegrated within 10 years and why is that it's because there was no stability political stability after his demise after he died his son came to power his son lasted a year or so before he was assassinated murdered then his son came to power he also could not last more than a year and i think within the next 10 years after between 19 between 1839 and 1849 there were at least five or six rulers in in uh, who succeeded maharaja ranjit singh and none of them was capable of uh, of consolidating the power and and ruling the kingdom effectively none of them was good enough to do that and that's the simple reason why the sikh empire disintegrated and the uh, anglo sikh wars the british prevailed and they took over the sikh territory and the amount of territory that maharaja ranjit singh had conquered from the pashtuns it fell into british hands it eventually became the the boundary dividing boundary eventually became known as the durand line it is currently the boundary the the border between pakistan and afghanistan and that is the root of the border dispute between these two countries so that is what maharaja ranjit singh was able to achieve and unfortunately because he did not have a successor with the same kind of strength of character strength of will and the ability the political and military ability to hold everything together he lacked that none of his uh, descendants was able to do that and that's that's why the the kingdom disintegrated within a decade so that's just how it happens it's all about succession you need the right successor you may be a great king great emperor but if your successors are not worthy of being able to rule a kingdom or empire like the the kind of kingdom that you have then your legacy will be very quickly frittered away by them and that's unfortunately what happened okay we have a couple of questions bunched into one arman says thank you for this interesting video i'm not sure which one but yeah, you're welcome sir as an iranian i'm very curious about the origin of our race and religion from the perspective of hindus because personally i believe the most realistic and near to truth story comes from the east instead of the west it would be great if you could re- reveal more about iranian and indian relations uh, let's take that question first the second one is also interesting but let's take this one first so listen we need to look at history from an evidence based perspective what the west tells us is that there was an aryan invasion from north from europe and the aryans split into two branches the iranian branch and the indian branch and we are all related indians and iranians we are aryans but we came from outside we are outsiders we are actually our ancestors were white skinned european people and today maybe we are different shades of brown because of various reasons so indians and iranians are like sister civilizations and we are descendants of ancient 
Aryan invaders. That is what most people believe in India and in Persia today. But look at look at our texts. So look, let's take a look at the the oldest uh, uh, the the uh, foundational um, the founding myth or story literary history of 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 Persia of Iran. So the text that is the most authoritative is the the is the Shahnameh of Firdosi, which was written roughly roughly approximately a thousand years before today, give or take a century or so. Don't uh, look it up if you want the exact accurate date. So the Shahnameh of Firdosi was written about a thousand years ago before today, and it recounts the entire history of the Persian people, right? Now, if you look at the origins, the origin story in the Shahnama, it is exactly the same as the origin story in the Rig Veda. It is a mythological story. It says that the, in the beginning, we had the great sun god. In Sanskrit, we call the great sun god Swarkshet. Swarkshet. Swar means the sun. It also means gold. Okay. So Swar and kshet. Kshet means shining. So when in Sanskrit you say swar kshet, it means the shining sun. In the Shahnamas, uh, in, in Firdos's Shahnama, it is Khurshed. What does Khurshed mean? In ancient Persian, in the old Persian language, sir became ha. So swar kshet became hwara kshet, which slowly became Khurshed. So the founder of Persia, the oldest oldest person that is uh, mentioned in uh, in the Shahnama is Varkshet or, or Khorshed. Now in the Vedic uh, tradition, the son, S-O-N son of Swarkshet was Yamakshet. So Yam was the first human being. Yam, Yamraj, right? Yam. Yamakshet. Because he was the son of the sun, so he was also shining. So he was also Kshet. Yamakshet. In the Shahnama, they call him Jamshed. So the story is exactly the same. Then you have the great uh, hero Treta, who is called Tretun in Shahnama. So you can see the ancient, oldest origin story is exactly the same in Persia and in uh, in the in the Shahnama and in the Rig Veda and so on in the Vedic texts in the Vedic tradition. So it is clear that the origin of the Persians and the Indians is the same. Now, was there an Aryan invasion? That's a whole different topic. I have gone into detail in that. There are lots of videos on my channel. What the evidence, what the hard scientific evidence, archaeological evidence, genetic evidence, all of that, what it tells us is that there was no Aryan invasion from Europe into India or Persia. At some point in time, there was a battle in ancient India, in the western region of India, Saptasindhu region, east of Persia. There was a big battle, the Battle of Ten Kings. And the losers, the, the 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 clans, the Vedic clans that lost were forced into exile out of India westwards. One of them most likely was the Parshwa clan of Indians, Rig Vedic Indians, Sanskrit speaking people. They went westwards and they settled in a land west of India. They were called the Parshwa people, the ones who held the Parshu, the battle axe. And they gave their name to the land. So the Parshwa people gave their name to the land, which became known as Persia. Their capital was Parshwapur, Persepolis. So that is the true origin of the Persian people. It is, well, it is not part of mainstream history, but that in fact is the truth. Like you said, all the West, the, the Eurocentric perspective is all about 
it's all about misrepresenting and distorting history we have to rediscover our own history from our recorded literature from the archaeological scientific evidence and all that so that is the relationship between india and iran we we, we used to be the same people now this event must have happened many thousands of years before today it is a vedic event it is it's a it's probably a puranic event so maybe it happened a few thousand years ago and as we know the language of ancient persia it was used to be very similar to sanskrit old persian it it was just it was it was i would say that it was the old persian and sanskrit were closer than spanish and portuguese are 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 today right so it was a matter of pronunciation like like british english and american english that sort of thing right <clears throat> and eventually persia developed its own uh, traditions its own culture and it's obviously a separate civilization in its own right it used to be today it is something else uh, that's a different story so that in brief is what i would say and you can certainly look up the ancient literature don't look at english translations western translations look at the original shahnama i think persians can read the original shahnama which was written in the persian of a thousand years ago but it's quite similar to today's persian language so read that and try and look at what the vedic texts say you will see a lot of commonality and that tells you that the indian persian people used to be the same long ago right the second question is by follower of ahura mazda Ahurmazd. Are ancient Persian dynasties like, like uh, Pishdadyan and Kayanian dynasties mentioned in the Rig Veda? All Persians uh, believe that we have a common ancestor called Kayomars or Kayomars, who was the first ruler of the Pishdadyan dynasty. Um, no. These ancient Persian dynasties are not mentioned in the Rig Veda or any Vedic or Puranic texts. What we know is that there was this battle in the Parshwar clan went westwards. After that, there is no mention of the Parshwa people, the Parshwa clan, who were Rig Vedic Indians. So clearly, these uh, dynasties, the, the Pishtadiyan is the first, uh, they call it a mythical dynasty, right? What nonsense. They must have obviously existed. So the Pishtadiyan dynasty is uh, supposed to be the first dynasty of ancient Persia. That's uh, what... Um, what is recounted orally in oral histories and, and literature, etc. And the second one is the Kayanyan dynasty, which came after the Pishtadian dynasty. The Kayanyan dynasty is supposed to be named after the great Kavi kings. So you know what Kavi means in Persian and in Sanskrit. It means poet, poet kings. So that's how it is. But uh, uh, there is no mention of these two dynasties in the Rig Veda or any Vedic or Puranic text, which indicates that these dynasties emerged after the Persian people, the Parshwa people, went west of India. That's what most likely happened. It happened, these dynasties emerged after the Parshwa people reached what is now known as Persia or Iran. So that's what I can offer you, my friends, but very interesting questions and great to have these questions. Okay, Rohit says, I see our culture and language is more similar to Kurds than Turks. But in the history, it says Turks invaded India. So were the Turks and Kurds the same back then? Eh, good question, right. So who are the Kurdish people? The Kurdish people are considered to be an offshoot and outgrowth of the Iranian people, the Persian people. Right? Now, I just uh, went into detail about how the Persians and Indians are related culturally, ethnically, genetically, all that, same origin. Right? And therefore, if the Kurds are an offshoot of the Persians, then clearly they, their ancestors were also 
in the Vedic times, Indians. And that's why you will see that the language is an Indo-Iranian language, the Kurdish language. It is it is classified under Iranian today, but Iranian comes under Indo-Iranian, right? It's part of the broader Indo-Iranian language family. So the Kurdish language is part of the Indo-Iranian language family. Genetically, if you look at the genetics, I have not I have not seen studies or anything, but if genetic uh, analysis tests are done, you will see similarities between the Kurds, Persians, and Indians. No doubt about that. So that is the reason why even the culture, even the culture will have commonalities. Uh, the Kurds are now all Muslims. I'm I'm sure most of them, majority I'm sure. But if you peel back the layers of culture, you will see some remnant of pre-Islamic history among the Kurds, like uh, the Navroz festival which is in spring, I believe, which will be coming up soon, and so on. So you will see layers of pre-Islamic culture, which will have their ancient roots in the Vedic culture. So that's why you will find that Indian language, Indian culture, etc. is way more similar to the Kurds than to the Turks. Now you say that Turks invaded India. Well, that's a later invasion. It happened about a thousand years ago. Right. So the Turks have nothing to do with the Kurds. The Kurds their relationship with India goes back thousands of years. Right? The Turks had nothing to do with India. They, they are a completely different ethnicity and culture. They invaded India about a thousand years ago, 1200. It's, it's roughly around that time. So, that's how it is. So, there is no commonality, similarity between the Turks and the Kurds. And the reason for the similarity of culture and language, all that, is because of way more ancient history, common history, which dates back to the Vedic times. So that's the answer. Anmol says, what should be the appropriate tax rate for a country? Shri Rajiv Dikshit ji used to quote the Arthashastra in his lectures and advocated for a minimal tax rate of 5%. As it is said, lower the tax, higher the recovery. Even Chanakya would term a state extorting massive tax as beggar state, Curious to know your views on revenue mobilization and taxation. All right. Okay, so I'm not aware of what Shri Rajiv Dikshit ji has said or not said. I'm not aware of that. So uh, what I will say is this. Uh, from what I recall in the Arthashastra chapter 5, section 5, I'm not sure which part of the book it is, but uh, it says that I think there's a whole lot of... Uh, it goes into a great amount of detail about taxation, different tax rates for different activities, different professions and so on. But I think overall it advocates one-sixth. The tax rate, I think it believes it says should be around one-sixth of what uh, the uh, earnings are. So if the value of goods is X, then the tax should be X divided by six. That is the overall uh, what I recall, what is uh, stated in the Arthashastra, that seems to be the optimal tax rate. So one six uh, works out to about or sixteen percent or so. So that seems to be the optimal tax rate as per the Arthashastra of Shri Vishnu Gupta Chanakya. Uh, I would say that the state does need tax. Of course, the tax should tax burden should not be extremely high. Otherwise, it's going to ruin the country. Now, the thing is, my views about revenue mobilization taxation, I think we need to simplify taxation as far as possible. We already have something called the G GST. You go and buy a toothpaste, a toothbrush, you're paying tax because there is a GDP which is included in the price of your toothpaste or toothbrush. You go and buy a kilo of potatoes, 
there's going to be gdp on that also and other taxes local taxes whether you like them or not it's there so let's talk about the gdp any single product good service you buy and whatever price you pay for it gdp is included in that so you are already being taxed for everything that you purchase every tax every i mean every every good every service that you purchase there's gdp included in that then why do you need additional taxation why do you need income tax after that why don't you make it as simple as possible tax everybody via gst what did i say gdp earlier um, I, <laughs> i apologize if i did gst i mean gst so if everybody is already paying gst for everything they purchase in the country why do you why do they need to be taxed additionally additional income tax additional road tax additional god knows what are the tax just make it simple one gst for the whole country and of course you can have different things in categories in gst as per what the government and the politicians decide so what i would say is that make let there be just one tax in the country keep it simple as simple as possible keep it transparent just one tax make it make include everything in the gst don't make people run around in loops and in circles filing tax returns and income tax and whatever else make it simple that's that's my view simplicity is the best thing for the country so the tax has to be there the state the the the, the government needs the tax the tax revenue to the to run the country to invest in infrastructure to to give services to to the country all that is required of course you need tax for that so of course they should tax the citizens it should be a reasonable amount of tax uh, i don't know if uh, 16% is enough today maybe you can tax uh, 20% even up to 25 i think is 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 acceptable for most people i suppose more than 25 is is is, is just too much i would say so there needs to be tax 100% everybody should pay tax 100% everybody is paying tax whatever they buy because you have gst so why put why tax an income that has already been taxed right why why do you have multiple layers of tax so what my views are that taxation should be simple and straightforward and transparent rishi says mm, is it possible for a moon to have its own moon So what you are essentially asking is it possible for a satellite to have its own satellite now look at the solar system you have the sun in the middle and all the planets go around in elliptical uh, orbits for simplicity call them circular orbits so you have the earth going around the sun so the the earth is a satellite of the sun yes now the earth has its own satellite which is called the moon and if you look at the moon you have certain spacecraft that orbit the moon for instance chandrayaan 1 and chandrayaan 2 you also have uh, several nasa satellites that orbit the moon so these can be regarded as moons of the moon and so the answer is very simple a moon can have its own moon and even that moon can have another moon of its own very simple it's just a simple basic newtonian mechanics so yes to answer in brief a moon can certainly have its own moon yes Okay, so Deshna Biswas says, "My question may be silly. No, it's never silly. Ask your questions, please. Don't ever feel your questions are silly. So, do you think that as a scientist, one can one could instantly remember all the laws of physics and not forget certain things? My teacher, uh, my teacher told me that since 
you were to become an engineer so remember all the laws of physics properly but does that mean that at any random instant scientists can recall all the laws of physics properly my question is do scientists ever forget a few laws of physics well you see, you see it's like this uh, when we talk about the laws of physics we are not talking about text three paragraphs of, of this law and seven paragraphs of, of paragraphs of that law a, f- a law of physics a law of nature is expressed in f- in the form of a mathematical equation all the laws of physics are math- are expressed in the in the in the form of mathematical equations now when you are learning physics the, the process of learning physics takes years all right and to become a good physicist you have to internalize all the basic principles of nature of physics all these basic laws of physics and how do you internalize them you solve problems how do you learn math problem solving you solve lots of problems whether it is uh, arithmetic whether it is trigonometry whether it's algebra whether it's a uh, in uh, differential calculus integral calculation dif- calculus differential equations whatever it is you can only learn mathematics by solving lots and lots and lots of problems similarly do you learn physics by solving lots of problems so how do you solve the problems in physics you apply the laws of physics the equations so when you solve dozens hundreds of problems and you spend hundreds of hours solving these problems it simply becomes part of your internal makeup out of the operating system that you have so that's what happens so uh, the basic the main principles in the laws of physics they become completely totally internalized you can recall them at any time but you cannot recall hundreds of equations and all the derivations at any given point in time now when you are studying to pass an exam whether it is the iit jee or what is it gate or whatever for being an engineer or whether you are studying for the physics gre or whatever for that you have to memorize and cram all kinds of equations into your head and once you're done with the exam you let it go and you forget it all it doesn't matter so for a working physicist there are certain laws of physics certain equations that they will be able to recall instantaneously the other stuff you can just open in a book and look it up what really matters for a physicist is that you know how to solve problems and do research so that is a different kind of skill altogether that is i suppose some people are born with that aptitude some people have to develop it but to do a good uh, to to be a really good physicist you need to know how to solve problems knowing the laws of physics so some laws of physics the core fundamental laws of physics you can never forget and if you're a good physicist you will not be able to forget it even if even if you want to but everything else you can just look it up open your textbook open your reference book look up and use that so that's how it works so essentially you don't have to memorize every goddamn thing it's just not humanly possible but you must have a good familiarity so once you look something up you should know ah yes i know what i did with this i know what this equation is i know how to use it that's how it goes all right a curious wanderer says uh, can you please explain how the cheddar man is having features like dark brown skin and blue eyes thank you okay let me uh, explain what cheddar man is let me share my screen with you cheddar man cheddar man where is it here it is so this here gentleman is called the cheddar man uh this is an individual in ancient human being who lived in the british islands in present day england about 9000 years before today if i am not mistaken about 9000 years before today and what they had is his skeleton his body right 
and his skull which looked like this and today we have the technique of forensic facial reconstruction as you can see here's a different individual they were able to rebuild his face and so on so this is the face of the guy called cheddar man and on the basis of his uh, skeletal structure this the structure of his skull they were able to reconstruct his face this is what he looked like and because we now are able to um, do genetic analysis etc we know that he, this individual had uh, most likely had dark brown skin and blue eyes and the question is if this person lived in england present day england why did he have dark brown skin and why did he have blue eyes which is a perfectly good legitimate valid question excellent question so it's like this the genetics uh, your genetics determine what skin color hair color eye color you have and it is different genes that regulate your skin color your eye color and your hair color so if somebody has let's say light skin it is not necessary that they will also have blue eyes and blonde hair you will see people with white skin with dark eyes brown eyes and and dark hair you will see lots of examples of that so uh the genetic mutation that is responsible for light skin fair skin what we call european fair skin white skin whatever you want to call it it originated about 7 8 9000 years ago in india or maybe in the middle east and if you listen to my to the conversation i had with dr neeraj rai in in the podcast which is available on this channel you will see that the middle east is also part of the indian subcontinent population wise it used to be historically part of the indian subcontinent so the genetics there were also the same as the genetics in india right so the genetic mutation for fair skin which you find in ireland europe etc that originated in ancient india and it indicates that there was an exodus a migration from india to the west and that's why most of europe today has various degrees various shades of light or fair skin now this population influx into europe that caused all these changes came from the east they call it the yamnaya invasion of europe very violent invasion and once again if you listen to dr neeraj rai the yamnaya were 99% most likely of indian origin r1b is their patrilineal haplogroup which is of indian origin and they replaced ancient european populations violently they essentially massacred all the men right so before these light skinned people came into europe you had darker skinned people in europe that's what you had and this individual this gentleman uh, cheddar man is a very good example of that so there you have it the ancient europeans looked like this whether it is the cheddar man whether it is the, it is the cromanian man let me show you the cromanian man cromanian let's see what he looked like so they uh, represent him like this in in various skin colors but typically he was a brown skinned person uh, there are more accurate representations a uh, more recent ones i'm not sure if i have it here but the, even the cromanian man was a brown skinned person he also most likely had uh, blue eyes okay so let's not go into that right now so the point is that the genetic mutation for light skin entered europe from the east from india with the yamnaya invasion that happened about 5000 years ago roughly about 5000 years ago it it started 
Before that, even the people who lived in Europe, ancient Europe, they had brown skin. Now, the genetic mutation for blue eyes is a different is a different set of genes. The genetic uh, code for uh, blonde hair or red hair is also a different uh, genetic mutation. So that's not always correlated. And therefore, you had the, these set of characteristics that were prevalent in Europe before the Yamnaya invasion and replacement of the people of Europe. So it's all about genetics. So that's how ancient Europeans had dark skin and most likely blue eyes. And you, you will see that even in India, you will find blue eyes, even with, with people who have darker skin or whatever. You Blue eyes or green eyes or whatever, it's quite rare in India. Maybe 1% of the people may have it, 1 or 2%. But you do find it. And you also do find people with blondish, brown hair or blondish hair, even red hair in Western India, Northern India, and maybe other parts of India also. It's quite rare, but it is there. So all these genetic mixes, components are prevalent to various degrees in India too. Okay, Kostub says, what was the common language for communication between two linguistic between two between two different linguistic groups before English took over the position? Uh, before the English became the pre predominant uh, ethnic group or or the or the conquering people in the world. Before the rise of English, you had French as the diplomatic language in the West. So even today in diplomacy, the knowledge of French is, is quite common, quite prevalent. Diplomats typically speak French. Uh, good diplomats are supposed to be good at French and all that. So before English, you had French. When we come to India, when we come to India today, as you can see, I am having to speak in English. If I don't speak English, maybe half of my audience may not understand me very well, especially in the southern half of India. That's just the way it is today because of colonization. So before, English was forcibly shoved down the throats of the Indian people. It was Sanskrit that was the common language of communication across the civilized Indian world, which included Southeast Asia, Indonesia, of uh, the Philippines and so on and so forth, you know, Eastern Asia, Vietnam and all. Even the Chinese, when the Chinese travelers like Xuanzang, etc. came to India during the Tang dynasty, for instance, what language do you, th do you think they spoke in India? I mean, uh, someone like Xuanzang, I believe, and Fahian also, they entered India through Gandhar, which is present-day Afghanistan. So when they reached Gandhar, the, um, uh, the which valley was it? The Bamiya Valley, they said, oh, finally, we are in India now. Right. So that was ancient India at the time. And then they passed through Gandhar into Punjab, Kashmir, through Kashmir, Punjab. Then they went eastwards and the eventual destination was Nalanda, which is in present day Bihar, Magad. So all of these parts of India, obviously at that time also, they would have had different uh, languages that were spoken locally, regionally. And yet these Chinese travelers were able to converse with everybody, speak with everybody, communicate with everybody and find their way all the way to Bihar, to Magad. So obviously there was a common language that they were able to speak. And that was Sanskrit. So in India, before the destruction of our culture by foreigners, Sanskrit was the civilizational language. If you go to, if you went to Southeast Asia, if you went to present day Sumatra or Java, you could speak to the locals in Sanskrit. At least the officials and the uh, kings, etc. 
government people, administrative people, they would all understand. Sanskrit, Sanskrit was the high language of civilization. It even today is considered to be the prestige language in Indonesia. People still have Sanskrit names, even though the people of Indonesia are Muslims today. So the common language of communication throughout the Indian subcontinent and the Indianized world was Sanskrit, right? And as we know, it was first the people of Kalinga who Indianized Southeast Asia, Eastern Asia. And then it was the, the Cholas under uh, Raj, Rajendra Chola, most likely. Yeah, Rajendra Chola, who further Indianized uh, Southeast Asia. And it was always Sanskrit. Now, some people will say, you are wrong, Abhijit. There are so many Tamil-speaking people in Malaysia and so on. That is a much later influx. It happened during the British occupation of India and Southeast Asia. It was Indians who were forcibly taken there to work as laborers and whose descendants live there today. And most of most of them were from southern India, from Tamil Nadu. Because Tamil Nadu is on the east, as we know. And that's, that was closer, relatively, to Southeast Asia. So people from Tamil Nadu were taken as indentured laborers or whatever. And they were forcibly settled there. So that's why you have Tamil-speaking populations there. But during the Chola conquest, it was Sanskrit that was the language. So, uh, so that's the answer. It was Sanskrit. And here we go. Uh, <laughs> there's always a few questions about this. So let's go. Uh, Vishal says, in most of the countries outside of South South Asia, which you mean by which you mean the Indian subcontinent, the Hindu communities over there recognize both Sanskrit and Tamil as sacred languages and speak this, speak their mother tongue along with the language of their particular country. So why this Tamil versus Sanskrit debate is still going on in India? Both are ancient languages. Both have a rich literary musical tradition for ages. Why can't the people stop chauvinism and get along? They are both official languages. And there's a second question similar to this. Uh, by Peace Out, as a half Kashmiri, half Tamil person raised in Switzerland, I am fluent in Kashmiri, German, French, Hindi and Tamil. Thus kind of understand the link between the languages of India and the West, the oldest known literature in Tamil. Torlakapiyam, written by a Brahmin person, LOL, <laughs> talks nothing of the river Saraswati or the Dravidian Aryan races, but instead mentions various rituals and Brahminical or what are known as Hindu customs. Then how is it that the Dravidian parties were and are able to successfully brainwash the population down south that they are, dif that they are a different race of people? So these are both very good questions. Uh, the oldest Tamil literature, the oldest evidence of the Tamil language comes from the, 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 from the Sangam era, which uh, is around 300 or 400 BC, around 300 BC. That's the oldest known uh, textual literary evidence of Tamil. And in the Sangam literature, you will find the, the references to the Vedas, to the Rishis. You will find references to the Himalayas and the lands north of the Himalayas, which totally refutes and falsifies the claim that the uh, Tamil-speaking people were confined to the south of India. Even in 300 BC. There are references to the lands north of the Himalayas in Sangam literature. There are references to Vedic uh, texts and Vedic customs and uh, Vedic rituals, traditions, rishis, all that. So it, it totally goes against the myths that have been created that the Tamil people are a separate people, a separate ethnicity, a separate race, right? And there is something called a Dravidian race. There is no reference to Dravidians and Aryans in any Sangam literature. They have taken one word and tried to mangle it and make it sound like Dravidia, Dravidian or something, which, which is what they do, cherry picking of data. Uh, so 
so it is very clear that these are see tamil is 2300 years old at least and if the literature exists to existed in 300 bc it means the language must have existed long before that so one can safely say that tamil or proto tamil would have existed at least around 1000 bc so it's at least 3000 years old and the older versions of the, of the language may have been way way older than that nobody can dispute that so i am not saying this language is older or that language is older but from the evidence we have hard evidence clearly sanskrit is way older than that but i don't want to create unnecessary controversies going saying this is bigger or that is bigger we are all the same people come on we are the same people now the thing is why is it that the dravidian parties have been able to successfully brainwash the population firstly all tamils don't believe this right all tamil people do not believe this nonsense but i but the majority i it looks like do believe that the tamils have been oppressed by the aryans and there is a dravidian race that has been oppressed for 5000 years or or 3000 years or whatever the dating is and that it is a separate ethnicity separate culture separate religion the tamil culture was a secular culture there was no brahminism or whatever they they call it it's all nonsense so why is it that this notion has taken has gained so much currency it's because the education system in india teaches you lies first of all it teaches you that there is something called an aryan invasion and that the north indian people are descendants of white aryans south indians are descendants of the real people of india so it creates this invader and oppressed dichotomy and once you create that sort of feeling it becomes an emotional thing and you know you 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 feel an emotional connection to the story so these lies are being taught in the education system and secondly the education te- system doesn't teach students how to think for themselves it doesn't uh doesn't uh teach students the art and science of critical thinking how to know what is the truth and how to know what is lies how to discern lies and falsehoods from the truth it doesn't teach the art of discernments discernment it doesn't teach the science of critical thinking and therefore it it only tells you that you have to unquestioningly swallow whatever your teachers and your superiors tell you whoever is in a position of power whoever is in a position of authority whatever they tell you you have to unquestioningly believe it so for 20 years for 15 16 years that they, they use the teacher as the person in power the person in authority once you become an, uh, an adult once you are no longer in school college university whatever then you start looking at the people in the media as the ones in authority and therefore you have to unquestioningly believe whatever they tell you and that's why the politicians who own the media i'm not saying the entire media is owned okay let's not make that claim but the majority of the media as we all know is biased it has agendas it is controlled by various the majority not all has funding funds etc from various sources and if you look if you follow the money you will know where it comes from and therefore all of it has a certain agenda a certain political flavor a certain ideological flavor and that's why the media is also biased most of it and that's why you will find the same old lies being perpetuated by the media that the, the tamil are a separate people a different ethnicity different race they have a separate culture the kiladi thing proves the aryan invasion happened and the kiladi uh, civilization proves there was a separate tamil culture what nonsense man have you seen the evidence there have you seen the data have you seen what they found how does it show that there is a separate tamil culture 
Kiladi is one archaeological site. It is not a separate civilization. So all of this narrative is created to make the people believe that all of this is true. And the people, because of the indoctrination that they have gone through during the 15-20 years they spent in the education system, they just blindly believe it. I don't blame that for it. I don't blame it them for it. But that's just how it is. And, and the Dravidian parties, the South Indian parties, mostly in Tamil Nadu, mainly in Tamil Nadu, they have created this Tamil uh, versus Aryan, Dravidian versus Aryan uh, uh, dichotomy. They are playing off it. They are creating the sense of oppression. And that's how politics works. Create a sense of oppression, alienation, and then, and, and then position yourself as the savior. So that's what's going on. And because of political considerations, this all of this has gained a lot of currency. So you will find this belief prevalent in many, many people, especially in Tamil Nadu. Not all, not all, thankfully, but many people, unfortunately. That's why it is so. We are the same people. Please understand this. If, if Tamil people are watching, I'm sure they are watching and they will watch in the future. Please understand this. We are all the same people, North, South, East, West. The same people, the same civilization, the same culture, our ancestors, they are the same beliefs, the same culture, the same civilization. We all are the same people. So, genetically also we are the same people. It's it's proven. Alright. <clears throat> Siddhant says, question related to geopolitics. I read a theory of a multipolar world order where there are multiple superpowers coexisting and hopefully finding an equilibrium of some sort. Do you think this type of scenario is possible? If yes, will it be stable for a long time? If no, then this means will there be another Cold War when India tries to become a, su a superpower as it happened during US versus USSR and now US versus China or can India handle it well diplomatically? <clears throat> okay, so uh, is there going to be a multipolar world or a bipolar world? we are already going towards a bipolar world. Multipolarity is nonsense. It's not going to happen. Power is never shared. It's always one superpower or at the most two superpowers. There is no space on this planet for three superpowers. It's very hard for, that, for such a scenario to emerge. If it emerges, it will only be a transient scenario. So we are already seeing a bifurcation of the global systems. We are already seeing the emergence of, of the of the new Cold War. We are already inside. We are already in the Cold War 2.0. So the world is now bifurcating into a bipolar system. The Western um, system, the existing system, which, which was dominated by the United States, uh, and a different pool, which is the dragon bear, what Velina Chakarova calls the dragon bear, which is the systemic cooperation between China and Russia. So that's the kind of bipolarity we are already seeing. And uh, so we are inside, a, we are already in the middle of a Cold War. When India tries to become a superpower, well, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Maybe in the next 20, 30 years, we may be in a position to uh, achieve that. So can India handle such a thing diplomatically? You know, power is not diplomacy. Diplomacy is one of the elements of power. But hard power comes from something else altogether. It's economic power, military power. Uh, to be a superpower, you have to position yourself, you have to place yourself in a position to be able to intervene militarily anywhere in the world within a 30 to 60 minute time frame. That is the hallmark of a, geo of, of a superpower. 
and secondly you need to be in control of the world's reserve currency today the world's reserve currency is the us dollar so these things only the us can do the chinese can't do therefore the chinese are not a superpower people are talking about china as a superpower it's not a superpower it's an aspiring superpower it's a local hegemonic power it's bullying all its neighbors but it's not yet not yet a superpower india is not even a proper local power okay let's look at it very coldly from a realistic perspective india cannot get even get its neighbors to behave and therefore india is not even a proper local hegemonic power you know what happens right the sri lankans kill our fishermen the maldives you they, they kick out an indian company we know what the pakistanis do anyway we know what the attitude of bangladesh is towards india from time to time you know how nepal is going into the chinese camp so india is not even able to control its immediate neighborhood so what superpower it's not even a local power regional power right now but maybe india is uh, abiding by the maxim of deng xiaoping which says bide your time and hide your capabilities and work very hard so maybe that is the phase india is going through um so yeah so we are seeing the emergence of a new bipolarity a new bipolar world order and we are already in the middle of a new cold war okay swastika says if russia starts a war on ukraine what will be its effects on india and whose side india should choose uh there could be a war possibly there are rumors being spread right now by various uh, reporters journalists that the russians are planning to invade ukraine next week or so so for future reference today is the 12th of february 2022 february 12 2022 today is a saturday so next week apparently russia is planning to invade ukraine let's see how it goes whether that prediction is correct so if russia starts a war with ukraine what will be the effects on india not much not much it's a regional war it's a regional conflict it will be localized in eastern europe and uh, so unless the chinese take that as an opportunity to also invade taiwan simultaneously it's not going to have much of an effect on india so if it's a simple russian invasion of ukraine it's going to be a local thing there is going to be repercussions globally the, the us will intervene in some manner nato will get involved and there could be a bigger conflagration possibly maybe not let's see for india there will not be much of an effect war whose chi- whose side india should choose india should always choose one side only there is a side of india this is not india's fight then why should india get involved india should remain neutral in this india should pursue its own long term national interest now how does it augment further or further india's national interest by getting involved in a conflict in which india has has no nothing, nothing to do so india should remain neutral in this and india should just work assiduously in furthering its long term national interest by building its economy and its military its internal systems its infrastructure and all, all of that so that's what india should do ashwarya says um uh, thank you ashwarya so the question is i wanted to ask what would have happened if the british would not have invaded india if the british had not invaded india then we would be speaking marathi because see what the british did was they destroyed the maratha empire and replaced the marathas as the hegemonic power in india 
the marathas what they had achieved was that they had step by step slowly decade after decade eroded the turkic occupation of india the turkic power in various parts of india and by the middle of the 18th century they had reestablished indian home rule or what they called hindvi swarajya all across india across most of india and their territory their their uh, dominion extended to the southern parts of afghanistan present day afghanistan in so they so parts of gandhar were part of the territory so they had destroyed the turkic military machine and they had reduced the so called mughal emperor to nothing more than the mayor of delhi right that's what the marathas had done through conquest through military power and what the british did was that they dis- they defeated the marathas and it is all thanks to the infighting among the maratha peshwas to the petty politics and infighting among the marathas and that's why the british were able to take advantage of that and slowly take control of india so had the british not invaded india and not defeated the marathas then india would be speaking either marathi or sanskrit today we would of course have local languages but the state language the language of the state administration all that would have been most likely marathi or sanskrit maybe both to some extent so that's what would have happened had the british not invaded india and you would not have all this religious strife and all that and all of that which the british engineered in india you would not have all the dravidian aryan nonsense and all of that all of the division that you are seeing in indian society today you would not have that so that's what i can offer to you in brief um next question banu pratap says in the battle of the 10 kings the bharathas finally won the battle and the kuru empire was established wanted to know whether this is the reason our land was named bharat and secondly does this somehow lead to the western world to conclude that the eastern movement of aryans and the aryan invasion theory uh right so yes it was the the bharat clan the bharat clan that won the battle and it established the kuru kuru empire and that is indeed why our land our civilization is called bharat so the bharat clan its progenitor or one of their ancestors was was king bharat right um so that's why that's why india is known as bharat historically right and that battle has nothing to do with the alleged eastward eastward aryan invasion or whatever if you look at the uh, at the outcome of the battle you find the migration and the flight escape of the defeated clans westwards so there actually all the events they actually go they fly in the face of the fake aryan invasion myth so the aryan invasion theory has nothing to do with the battle of the 10 kings the battle of the 10 kings if you look at the events it actually completely disproves the aryan invasion myth but you are right the la- the reason our land was named bharat is is because it was the bharat clan that won the bharat clan which won the battle and established what became the kuru kingdom or the kuru empire in in india okay aditi says in all our temples and other architecture both men and women alike are portrayed as bare chested yes correct why is it so when is it true that traditionally covering up was not a sign of modesty this feature is seen in extended india also in cambodia where apsara dancers and carvings don't cover up if covering up was in way is inherited in india 
due to foreign invasions why is it seen in countries east of us and uh, so and there is this opinion floating around in southern india that priestly and warrior class used to cover up and did not allow the so called lower caste women to cover their upper body so as to humiliate them please enlighten all right all right all right all right so you are right aditi that uh, if you look at any ancient carving in temples and other architecture you will find that men and women both are bare chested there there is no controversy in that it's a matter of fact go anywhere and see it you will find it so why is it so you asking it's because of india's climate india's climate is hot and humid right anywhere especially in southern india and it doesn't make any sense in that that sort of climate to to cover your body extensively there's no need for that and there was nothing in india's culture that said that being bare chested was any is was bad or 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 immodest in any way whatsoever men women both used to be bare chested and that was the way it was you can see ancient black and white pictures of taken during the british times in various parts of india in which men and women were bare chested right especially in the south because in the north you had the turkic invasions because of which the women had to were forced to cover up because the turks used to treat women as pieces of meat unfortunately so if you look at the of of if you look at the culture of india before the turkic invasions men women were both typically bare chested and it was not considered to be a sign of immodesty or any such thing it was not considered to be the sign of being uncivilized a sign of being uncivilized uncultured any of that and the same existed like you said in cambodia where apsara dancers used to be bare bare chested yes but why do they cover up today because of the influence of western culture worldwide if you see old black and white images pictures of apsara dancers in cambodia you will find they were bare chested and there was nothing shameful about that it is the it is the influx of western culture and western moral norms worldwide that has made the entire world cover up in eastern asia you, women and men used to be all bare chested you will find lots of photographic evidence of that even if you look at japan there used to be i remember uh, these female divers fisher women who used to dive underwater and all that they used to wear very scanty clothing they used to be bare chested and there was nothing shameful or dishonorable about that but today everybody covers up it's because of the 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 hegemony of western culture and moral values and normative behavior that this has happened okay so so that's why it has happened it has uh, it, it was never part of eastern culture that you have to cover up and wear and all that uh then the other opinion is that the priestly and warrior class used to cover up in south india but did not allow so called lower caste women to cover up to humiliate them it is lies it is lies it has been debunked you can see articles online which debunk that there is this myth of this woman called nangeli and all that 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 may be something unrelated or something tangentially related but these are all colonial lies that have been created to cause this this divide in indian society aryan versus dravidian low caste versus high caste all this nonsense these are all colonial myths and fabrications the origin of all these lies is in the colonial era after the british took over and they did all kinds of various uh social engineering experiments to try and break up indian society and it's worked you can see there are so many divisions in indian, indian society today so why don't you take a look at my uh, the the conversation i had with uh, 
Dr. Meenakshi Jain, in which she has spoken about how the British engineered. She has not gone into this particular matter, but she has spoken about the methodology they employed to further colonize India and to anglicize and Christianize India. And to do that, you have to first show the local culture, the Indian culture, as primitive, as backward and, and, and inferior. And once you create these divisions in society, you put one group against another, you create artificial divisions, artificial groups in society, artificial strata in society, and then you put one against another, then it becomes easier to induce people to convert to their foreign religion and so on. So that was all part of the or part of the colonial agenda and it's really worked. And, and unfortunately, even today, the colonial agenda is at work through our education system and our political class in the media and all that. So we are getting we are sliding further back and we are getting more and more colonized, even 70 years after the British officially departed from India. That's just unfortunate. Something needs to be done about this. Okay, Mayur says, is there politics in science stream also? If yes, how is that? If no, is it good or bad? You know, the one central characteristic of human society is that there's politics. What is politics? You form coalitions, groups of like-minded people, of people who have similar interests, and you work together because in numbers you have more power. And therefore you find the formation of various factions in society. You will see that happening within a single family, extended family. You will see that happening in, inside a city, in a state, in a country, in, and so on and so forth. And you will see that in various professions. If you work in any office, in any, let's say, private company or whatever, you have office politics, petty, low-level office politics. You will face that. And even in the scientific establishments, even in academic systems, you have the same politics, the same factioneering and all that. And you also see that certain, uh, certain, um, certain theories gain more credence, certain theories gain more, more currency in science. For instance, in science, you have the, even today, you have the Aryan invasion theory that many so-called scientists, linguists, geneticists are still trying to push. It's it's dying out, but it's still among the older ones. You still see, the, see those attitudes, right? So there is that is politics. That's agenda-driven uh, behavior. And you will also see it in physics. So for all these years, for the past 30, 40 years, there's, the, there's been the uh, theoretical physics has been under the stranglehold of what some people call the string theory mafia. So all of the funding in North America, especially even today in all the physics departments goes into string theory research, even though string theory is more or less a failed theory by now, it has not made any, even a single testable prediction. It gives rise to 10 raised to 500 possible versions of the universe, the so-called string theory landscape. It's utter nonsense. I mean, a theory needs to produce some results that you can test. It's not succeeded at all. And yet you have, if you look at the online literature, it's all string theory, string theory, string theory. So that's a consequence of politics. So yes, you have politics in, in science as well. Typically, politics is bad. <clears throat> politics leads to groupthink. 
and it it uh, prevents people from thinking outside of the box i mean you can express certain opinions and ex- explore certain theories but you will be marginalized if you do, do if you do that you may try and publish papers but your papers will not be accepted they will be rejected and therefore you will you will no longer be in the mainstream of research so that is all political so a politics is always bad it it hinders research it hinders original thinking politics makes forces people to conform to certain behaviors and to certain streams of thought right so politics is bad but unfortunately it exists in science as well okay wisdom bro says why uh, have we consistently fa- kept falling into the hands of enemies for the last 1000 years is there any loophole in our culture and upbringing we don't understand there is no loophole in our culture my dear friends there's no loophole in the culture this is not about culture it's about power it's about political power it's about political unity if you have political unity in the indian subcontinent nobody can dare to try and invade you they are going to be smashed destroyed look at the times when india was politically united the mauryan era the kushan era under the great kanishka kanishka the great the gupta era the the the, the era of lalita ditya muktapida the chola era and the maratha era also when briefly india was united at the time nobody could defeat india so the past 1000 years we were invaded when we were not politically united we, were, we had all these small kingdoms fighting each other for supremacy and that's why india fell to the to to the invaders it's not because of any cultural loophole it has nothing to do with culture it is simply that there was a lack of political unity and stability that is what caused what happened what i call the the millennium of humiliation harshal says having read so much history have you concluded in your mind that there was possibly the one and only sanatan dharma on the planet and everything else is just different adaptations and manifestations of it what i have seen in my study of history is that throughout most of history the world every significant culture was polytheistic i would not say it was all different manifestations of sanatan dharma i would not say that i would not make that claim but yes the world was polytheistic whether you look at the polynesian cultures whether you look at the various african civilizations whether you look if whether you look at the hunnic peoples the turkic peoples and the mongolic peoples there they were all polytheistic if you look at india obviously we had sanatan dharma indian culture if you look at the ancient persians even as zoroastrians they were polytheistic many people especially zoroastrians will, will try and say no you are lying zoroastrianism is a monotheistic religion nonsense Zoroastrianism is a polytheistic religion. Don't lie. And then, obviously, in Europe also, across Eurasia, you had various forms of the ancient Indo-European culture, which you could, which you could consider to be uh, various variations of the ancient Vedic culture. So, in Eurasia, from India all the way westwards to Ireland and Iceland, you had various manifestations of the same culture, which you can possibly. considered to be various local manifestations of sanatan dharma you could possibly consider that to be corrupted versions of sanatan dharma possibly so in eurasia yes india and west of india but you also had cultures in uh, let's say the americas north america south america i would not 
I'm not quite sure if there was any connection with India. There may be, but we still haven't found undeniable, incontrovertible evidence of that. There seems to be circumstantial evidence that there was something, but as of today, I cannot, uh, from the perspective of hard evidence, I cannot make the claim. So the world was 100% polytheistic before the emergence of the Abrahamic religions. Even the Arabs were polytheistic. Even the Babylonians were polytheistic. Right. The uh, the Akkadians, the Horians, all of them, the Egyptians, all of them were polytheistic. So the world was polytheistic before the emergence of the Abrahamic religions. Uh, so that's what I can tell you. I would not venture to make the claim that the whole world was Sanatan Dharma. I would not make that claim. Ayan says, did ancient people know about the dinosaurs? There is an interesting carving in the Angkor Wat temple resembling the Stegosaurus. What's your opinion? There are even mentions of elephants with four tusks and sea monsters like Vritra. Listen, <laughs> how many animals do you, want? <laughs> do you want me to talk about? Let's talk about the dinosaurs. Uh, did ancient Indians know about dinosaurs? I don't know. I haven't seen any hard evidence of the knowledge of the existence of the dinosaurs in India. See, the dinosaurs exist, died out about 65, 66 million years before today. That is about 6.7 crore years before today. Homo sapiens, our species, has existed for about two and a half lakh years. 250,000 years. A quarter of a million years. All right. So there is no overlap between the existence of the dinosaurs and human beings. None whatsoever. Of course, dinosaurs still exist, but don't tell anybody. That's a different story. That's... Okay, so um, the dinosaurs in the, the large monstrous form, Tyrannosaurus, Stegosaurus, Diplodocus, Brontosaurus, Apatosaurus, Iguanodon, all of those dinosaurs that died out about 66 million years before today. And I have never seen any temple carving or anything that resembles a dinosaur from my own lived experience. I have not seen that. If there is any such thing, let me know in the comments below and I'll take a look at it. Now you say that there is a carving in Angkor Wat resembling the Stegosaurus. That's interesting. I haven't seen it, but I will try and find it. So that's an interesting thing you tell me. Uh, I also, I think it's also believed that the Chinese had this uh, this tradition of belief, of this belief in dragons, right? The dragons once existed, these mythical creatures. Maybe they had found, maybe they may have found some skeletal remains, fossilized remains of dinosaurs. And maybe they construed that as the existence of dragons long ago. So that is a possibility. That's a possibility. Right. So that's what I can tell you. As far as I know, I have not seen evidence of Indians having carvings of dinosaurs and all that. Uh, sea monsters like Vritra, that's a whole different story. The Vritra is a serpent. It's a great mythological serpent that tries to swallow the ocean. And Indra, the great warrior, has to defeat Vritra with his great Vajra, which is the thunderbolt. And the Vajra is also the hammer. The hammer. So, the, so Indra is a hammer god and a thunder god. It's the same as Zeus in Greek mythology. Zeus also defeats a great sea monster, great sea serpent. Typhon, T-Y-P-H-O-N. Typhon is that great snake. That Zeus defeats Jupiter. Zeus Pater became Jupiter. It was the Roman god who did the same thing. And the Nordic equivalent of Indra is Thor, who is also a hammer god and a thunder god. And he defeats a great snake called Yormugandra. You want to take a look at him? The great Yormugandra. Let me show you. Uh, 
that's what the great nordic snake looks like yormungandr the snake that uh, thor defeated so that's the same pattern that you see mythologically in all these indo european cultures which all originate in ancient vedic india but from the perspective of dinosaurs i have never seen any carvings of dinosaurs personally if you know of any let me know in the comments below all right uh, mayur says tell your set of principles for learning geopolitics and suggest any book which helps in understanding geopolitics a uh, geopolitics i i don't think there is any course in any university that deals with geopolitics i have personally not read a single book on the topic or subject of geopolitics like this is a textbook of geopolitics or an introduction to geopolitics there is no such book Ge- to understand geopolitics you have to understand a vast variety of things first of all you have to understand world history not just your local history but the history of the entire world so it takes a lot of time to 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 learn to study that to to read that to internalize that without understanding history you will never ever understand geopolitics and we're talking about world history here not just your local country's history or whatever so the first prerequisite to understanding geopolitics is understanding world history the second thing is you have to understand the cause and effect relationship in historical events just understanding or studying history will not teach you anything you have to understand cause and effect how do things happen and why do things happen there's always a cause and effect relationship it's not always obvious but it's there so you have to understand that that's a deeper level of understanding of history thirdly you have to understand power what is power power is the big mysterious thing right what is power there are different levels of power different kinds of power right you have to understand why empires rise and fall there is again causality the cause and effect change a chain then you have to understand global systems modern global systems the financial system the system of supply chains you have to understand all of that you have to understand economics at the, at the macro level at least you have to understand military history you have to understand how the militaries of the world work you have to understand the difference between policy and doctrine and strategy and tactics and execution so that these are some of the things that you need to understand in order to gain an understanding of geopolitics so i don't know when i realized that i understand geopolitics at least to some extent but i have been studying all these things i've been fascinated with these things for forever and uh, that's why at some point in time i realized that i i actually understand geopolitics i understand how things work and all that so it takes time i would say it would take at least 10 years of study at least 10 years of study minimum at least to become a novice a beginner in geopolitics you have to dedicate to study for 5 years all of these things so there is no book there is no book available for understanding geopolitics unfortunately i have not come across any i have only studied books in books about history books about military strategy book about books about various empires books about uh, supply chains and economic systems and all that and various wars world war 1 world war 2 uh, the punic wars and many other things and slowly 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 you you the you would make the internal connections in your mind after reading a lot so that is how i 
have acquired an understanding of geopolitics i don't know if how other people do it there are courses on geopolitics from a systems perspective i think of one of my previous guests velina chakarova if you look at her website she has a course that she offers uh, you could perhaps if you want enroll for the course and and gain an understanding from from that perspective she she studies uh, and analyzes geopolitics from a from a systems perspective like the economic system the supply chains the infrastructure the various institutions like the un and their interrelationships the diplomatic um, world and all that right so there are various ways of studying and analyzing geopolitics so it's it's quite complicated it's not easy but it's something that's worthwhile doing if you are interested in all of these different things so all of that is geopolitics um ganpat says how can we and the indian government deal with foreign involvement in the internal affairs of india through religious organizations and ngos see foreign interference in a country's internal affairs is possible when the foreign interfering power is much more powerful than the country they are interfering with so they essentially compel the country to accept this interference or else there will be consequences right now there are certain countries there is a certain country that is way 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 more powerful than india i am not talking about china you know marx karl marx spoke about the invisible hand that uh mediates and influences and controls global events so we don't we don't know who this invisible hand is but we know that he speaks english so there are certain powers in the world that are way more powerful than india if they want they can destroy india and they essentially compel india to accept certain kinds of interference otherwise there will be consequences for india right now india is not strong enough to resist that what should india do keep quiet keep a low profile bide your time and work hard to develop yourself into a stronger nation india well, see india's gdp right now is around 3 trillion dollars or so right approximately india needs to reach the 10 trillion dollar level in gdp once india reaches that stage india is going to be a different kind of beast it will be a whole different kind of power economic power and with economic power there comes a pro- proportional level of military power that will be a different india when china was at india's position 3 trillion dollars gdp china used to behave in a very meek manner they did not have this wolf warrior diplomacy and issue, issuing threats to everybody they had a very conciliatory approach they used to keep quiet and they would be routinely humiliated by the western nations and they used to just swallow their pride and accept it and they knew that they were building their country and in the future they'll be able to push back so that is exactly what india needs to do right now india needs to develop on the india needs to focus and work very hard on the unglamorous stuff building infrastructure building highways building railways building the industries developing the industries building up the infrastructure increasing india's gdp india needs to reach 10 trillion dollars of gdp and then it will be a different story so that's what india needs to do what india needs is every year at least 10% 10% gdp growth anyhow we need to achieve that and that's the government's job you have one job 
build India up, develop the economy, make the economy grow as fast as is humanly possible. And that needs to happen for at least 10 to 20 years. Then we will talk. All right. Um, Divya says, <laughs> can you talk about power, what it is and how do we understand power, etc. Okay, power. Has any of you seen the movie Fight Club? So if you have seen the movie, you will know the rules of Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is that you do not speak about Fight, fight Club. And the second rule of Fight Club is that you do not speak about Fight Club and so on. So the same goes with power. You do not speak with power. There are secrets to power that you do not reveal. But this, but that is not what I do, right? I'm here to share information, share knowledge. I don't keep secrets. So let me reveal a couple of secrets about power. So let me give you two rules, two rules to understand power. So if you are a king or if you are a dictator, or if you are a president or prime minister, to be in power and to remain in power, you need the support of other powerful people. That is undeniable. You can never be in power without the support of other powerful people. Now, why would other powerful people support you? Because they get something in exchange. They gain something from keeping you in power. Maybe they, the, gain, the gain is that you allow them to stay alive. Or maybe you give them some benefit. You know, They gain some money, some, some power of their own, which, derive, which is derived from your power. So the first rule of power is that these people who are essential to your staying in power, you have to keep that group of people as small as possible. Keep the group of people who are essential to your staying in power, keep it as small as possible. That is the first secret of power. The second secret of power is that keep the number of people, the group of people who you can trust as large as possible. So essentially the people who you can trust are the people who are loyal to you and the people who will obey your orders, your government machinery, your officers, your officials, etc. You keep that group as large as possible. So you have to minimize one group and maximize the other group. Okay, you can start with understanding this and then maybe in the future we'll talk more. So these are two secrets of power that nobody will tell you. Okay, let us take one more question. Karthik says, can you please speak about Napoleon Bonaparte's life? Some people say he was abducted by aliens and scientists claim that they have found a chip in his skull. Okay. Listen, guys, this is between you and me, okay? Do not tell this to anyone. This secret must not leave this space. You see, Napoleon was not abducted by aliens. He was an alien. But don't tell anyone. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's take some a few. Uh, let's take a few questions from the from the live chat. You have any questions? I'll 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 take two three questions. Um, yeah, I think everyone is, uh, 
Okay, let's take this. Jeet says, if Egyptian civilization was great, then how, how did it go extinct? Everything has ups and downs. Every empire, every civilization has ups and downs. Look at the Romans. They were so great. Where are they today? Look at the Greeks. They were so great. Where are they today? Look at the Babylonians, Assyrians. They were great. Great empire. Great civilization. What happened? It went extinct. And so on and so forth. Everything has ups and downs. The Egyptian civilization was an empire, imperial form of, of governance, etc. And they went extinct because they were, first of all, de defeated by the Romans. Um, you had the Hellenic phase of Egyptian civilization when uh, kings like Ptolemy, etc., Greek uh, origin kings were ruling them. Then you had the Roman conquest during Julius Caesar's time when uh, you had the, the hegemony of the Romans. And, uh, and then you had the Arab... Islamic conquest of Egypt, which was the final nail in the coffin. And that's why it, it disappeared. That's why it went extinct. So today, if you look at the people of Egypt, they will obviously have the ancient uh, Egyptian ethnicity, but culturally they are Arabs. They speak Arabic and their religion, as you know, is the uh, religion that is prevalent in the Arabian um, part of the world. So that's how it, it, it went extinct. Other questions? Do we have other questions? Is India going towards glory or is declining now? I would say India seems to be going in the right direction. It, there, there needs to be a lot more work. But I am cautiously optimistic. Let's not talk about glory yet. Glory is in the future, hopefully. Right now, India needs to go towards a state of reasonable prosperity. We need to reach there first. I think we are going in that direction. So I am cautiously optimistic. Glory we will talk about later. But we, I don't think India is declining now. In certain ways, culturally, civilizationally, India is declining. If things continue like this, in the next 50 to 100 years, there will be no more Indian culture left, Hindu culture, Hinduism. So that is something that needs to be addressed. Maybe it will be addressed when the time is right. Um, <laughs> how to improve one's personality be yourself and learn learn and become confident how do you become confident first of all you can there are two ways of becoming confident if you are financially prosperous you are confident and secondly if you are physically healthy and strong you're confident so work hard uh, in your career acquire money and secondly uh, Stay healthy, remain healthy and become the best version, physical version of what you can be. And thirdly, acquire knowledge, interact with interesting people. All of that will make you a well-rounded human being. And then be confident about yourself and be yourself. That's how you improve your personality. It doesn't take, it will not happen overnight. It will not happen next week or next month. But it is something you can consider to be a five-year or ten-year project. Because life is long. Right? So that's how you improve your personality in a nutshell. All right. Um, okay. The Harappan people used to worship animals. They used to worship bulls instead of cows. How do you know that? How do you know that? There are no carvings of Rigvedic gods in Mohenjo-daro. How can we say that Harappans were not the same as Rig, uh, were the same as Rigvedic? So, okay. Have you seen the great carving of Pashupati? The 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 the, the great 
person who is sitting cross-legged with animals all around him. And you will see later representations of the god Shiva in the same form. Now Shiva is a Vedic god. He is mentioned in the Vedas. And therefore you have a representation of Shiva, a Vedic god in, in Mohenjo-daro, in the so-called Harappan region. You will find shivlings there. Lots of shivlings. So what does a shivling indicate? The worship of a Vedic god. A god who is mentioned in the Vedas. You say they worship bulls. Well, how do you know they worship bulls, sir? <laughs> there are carvings and sculptures of bulls. It doesn't mean it was for worship. Maybe it was some other purpose. We don't know, right? We cannot assume it was worship. There are also carvings of tigers and lions and fish. So can we assume they were worshipping fish and tigers and lions and birds? Let's not make assumptions. Now, if you look at all the data, the archaeological data, the cultural data, the other data, if you put it all together, it becomes obvious that there is only one identification we can make of the people of the Saptasindhu region from the Harappan phase of our civilization, and that is the Vedic people. Now, I cannot explain all of that over here. It takes hours. I have lots of videos about that. You can also look at the, the conversation I had with Dr. Neeraj Rai, in which we go into that in detail. So I cannot give an answer about this and explain everything and debunk everything in five minutes. It takes time. There are so many layers of evidence that you have to look into. So I have written articles about this. I have explained about this in great detail in certain episodes. I think I have at least one episode, Ask Abhijit, which is dedicated only to the Aryan invasion myth. And I have this conversation with Dr. Neeraj Rai. So it will take, if you want to understand this in depth, it's going to take you some investment of time. I cannot give you all the evidence right here, right now in five minutes. Not possible. But I appreciate the question. It's a very good question. Many people will have the question. So what I would suggest is look at uh, the other videos I have on the channel. Look at my conversation. Listen to the conversation with Dr. Neeraj Rai. Watch my episode on the Aryan invasion theory. Read up. Uh, I have a couple of articles. Just Google it, right? Um, and it, it's going to take some time for you to understand all of this. but. All the evidence, all of the evidence points to the fact that the Vedic phase of Indian civilization and the so-called Harappan phase is one and the same. So you will need to invest the time, dedicate some time and learn this, examine all the evidence for yourself and then use your own intelligence and logic to come to your own conclusions. But the conclusions I have come at after studying this for so long is that these two are one and the same. All right. Okay. Is there anything else I can take? We are almost at two hours. So, um, okay. This is the last question for today. Why does India not build a military like Russia? Like Russia has a small economy, but a powerful military. Well, please understand, sir. Pushkarji, clash with Pushkar. Russia is no longer in the top 10 economies. Yes. But do you remember how the world was 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Russia was a military, economic, and all-round superpower. And the military they built up at that time, it still exists. So today's Russia, even though it has a small economy, has a very powerful military because of what it inherited from the USSR. They have continued that. And they also inherited this massive nuclear arsenal 
from the USSR. So that's why, despite being a, such a small economy, they have a massively powerful military. That's the reason. Now, India did not get any inheritance of that kind. So we are building up everything, the military, the navy, everything, as we go today. So as our economy expands and grows larger, our military capabilities will also be augmented proportionally. So that is the reason why we witness this different trajectory when it comes to India. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for all the questions. Very interesting session. As always, tomorrow I'm going to have another session, which is going to be a video chat session. So please come prepared with your best questions and I'll hopefully speak to as many of you as possible face-to-face -face on the screen. Until that time, thank you so much for your questions, for your viewership, for your support. I really appreciate that. Very grateful. And I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. Bye.